Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts and your all-around friendly neighborhood adaptation enthusiast. Okay, this week, very special. I don't do this often. I have a three-way conversation with Deanna Moran and Elena Mahali of the Conservation Law Foundation. Deanna is a planner and Elena is an environmental lawyer, and they've been tag-teaming talking about adaptation and legal liability. This is important work, folks. At the end of the day, I think the courts will play a major role in getting various sectors to take adaptation seriously. Deanna and Elena have just published a report, Climate Adaptation and Liability, which maps this issue out. Don't let that dull name put you off. It's very readable and very important work. In this episode, we dig into all things adaptation and legal liability. And as a bonus, we identify some favorite lawyer movies for you. Okay, first off, let's get to one of my favorite things now, letters from adapters. Today, I have a letter from Alexandre Samard, and it's a good one. Dear Mr. Parsons, my name is Alexandre Samard. I'm a graduating student in University of Moncton Sustainable Development and Coastal Studies Bachelor Program in Moncton's in Canada. Through my courses, I found it very difficult to find any news source about adaptation and climate change that wasn't centered around Europe, parentheses, considering most of my studies are done in French. Right before the Christmas holidays, I was looking for podcasts to listen to why I triaged oyster larvae and found America adapts. I immediately fell in love with the format and content and started recommending it to everyone in my micro program. Yay! Okay, starting with the WWF series and moving on to other topics such as flooding and the legal episode, I found myself thinking about coursework while I was on Christmas break. Parentheses, this is a good thing. I wanted to reach out to you for two reasons. First of which is thanking you for delivering quality content for such an important topic. As a future professional in the adaptation field, your podcast helps me stay motivated and understand that there's a web of people who are just waiting to work together. Though I'm applying for law school, I'm most probably going to start up a podcast on climate change in French once I get back to Montreal. The second reason is because one of my teachers and I have decided to analyze the framework around a Quebec initiative to make a small community either more resilient to coastal flooding or encourage adaptation by moving inland. Though it's only an undergrad project, we'd like to publish either educational or summarizing content rather than publish an official paper that will barely be understood by the general population. If you don't mind, I'd like to exchange with you regarding how to deliver this educational content or maybe even have a discussion with you about the content of our research. In case you're curious, the community is called Saint Flavé, pardon my French, and is located in the lower St. Lawrence River. I think all the articles on the situation are in French, in which case I'd be more than happy to summarize them for you so you have better grasp of the situation. Thank you for your time and your dedication to the podcast. Kindly, Alexandre Samard. Hey, Alexandre, thanks for the fantastic email. First off, I love the imagery of you listening to America Daps as you triage oyster larvae. I'm not quite sure what triaging oyster larvae is, but I assume it's some type of lab work. Very cool. So yes, start that French-speaking climate podcast. I'm sure there's not a lot happening in that niche, and you could be one of the first. And thanks for the kind feedback on what you're doing with the podcast. Yes, I want people to feel motivated and not get paralyzed by the doom and gloom of climate change. And yes, there is a larger universe of adaptation professionals, and connecting via this podcast is one of my goals. And it's very cool, the work that you're doing, and I'm looking forward to learning more about it. Thanks again. That's that. Thank you so much, Alexandre. Okay, that was fantastic. 
don't forget adapters i love hearing from you so please reach out and write Okay, I've mentioned before, I will be mentioning this in pretty much every future podcast. We started this resource, Podcasts in the Classroom. So if you're interested in using America Adapts in your classroom for students or even for professional setting workshops, check this out. It's being led by Kate Bishop-Williams out of the University of Waterloo in Canada. Basically, each episode, Kate and a small team listen to that episode, then develop some discussion guides that will be available in the show notes. So for my last guest, Signe Nielsen, check out those show notes or the show notes from this episode. The discussion guides from Signe's conversation, the, those discussion guides will have questions and other resources that should help you in the classroom. And I want to give a shout out to uh, the team Kate is leading and thank them for their efforts on this. We got Kurt Newton involved, Ali vs. Lewis. Ali, sorry, I mispronounced that. And Sarah Hansen and Randy Van Hoos. It's a small team that helps develop those discussion guys. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Okay, I've mentioned I do public speaking. I just got back from Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was the plenary speaker for the Regional Wildlife Society and Fisheries Society annual meeting. What a great event. Thanks, Mary Kay and Kathy, for inviting me. If you haven't figured out, I used to be a wildlife conservationist before I started this podcast. It was great being back in that community, seeing what amazing conservation work is going on. Lots of university students doing critically important work on every species that you can think of. I gave a somewhat controversial presentation, basically saying that the North American conservation model is dead and should be replaced by adaptation. Surprisingly, a lot of people there came up and agreed with me. And it was sobering to hear stories of how climate change is impacting wildlife in the Southwest. A wildlife biologist from the Lincoln National Forest in Southern New Mexico who studies owls, shared with me that last year, due to the drought and lack of food, the 180 pairs of owls that they study, not a single one nested, meaning no new owls were born last year, and it's due to the long-term impacts of this drought. This year has been a little bit wetter, and they are seeing some nesting this year, but the long-term trends are incredibly disturbing. Well, it was a great event and a reminder of all the scientists doing thankless work in the field, keeping a pulse on what's happening to the amazing biodiversity that we live with. Keep it up, guys. Okay, quickly, if you are listening to this on YouTube, consider subscribing to America Adapts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Okay, upcoming episodes, I'm interviewing Indigenous Representative Kyle White, and we're going to talk, take a deep dive into Indigenous adaptation work and proper ways to engage the tribal communities. I'm also bringing back Jesse Keenan of Harvard University, and we'll discuss his recent work on climate finance. And I'm interviewing Marcy Rockman, former cultural resource adaptation coordinator with the National Park Service. Some stellar material coming up. Love these conversations. Okay, just a reminder, America Daps is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. I don't do this enough. For those who have already donated, thank you so much. It's I'm deeply touched by your generosity. I thank you for making the effort to going and donate. This is a little mom-and-pop operation. As you can tell, it takes resources to keep it going, and I thank you tremendously for those who are donating. So if you are considering donating yourself, there's a We Did It Donate page in the show notes. Also, if you are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There's so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are so much fun. I share stories from the podcast, my own experiences and adaptation and where I think we're headed. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me via the website americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, let's join Deanna and Elena and learn what it means to be liable to climate change.
Hey, welcome back, adapters. On today's episode, I am very excited to be hosting two guests, Deanna Moran and Elena Mahali. Deanna is Director of Environmental Planning at the Conservation Law Foundation, and Elena is a staff attorney at the foundation. Hey, Deanna and Elena, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Doug. I don't do these kind of three-way conversations very often. I should. They're fun. We're going to jump right in. What is the Conservation Law Foundation? Yeah, CLF is a regional environmental nonprofit. We work mostly in New England, and we focus on kind of all of the traditional environmental advocacy issues. We have programs that are pretty wide-ranging from ocean conservation to clean water to climate resilience and clean energy pretty much every topic that you could think of. And we are primarily a organization of attorneys, but we do have a couple of other professional backgrounds sprinkled in. I'm a city planner by training. We have an economist on staff and some other people of different professional backgrounds, but that's kind of the realm of what we focus on. And as a nonprofit, we do focus a lot on advocacy. How big are you? You mentioned a bunch of attorneys, but how big is the organization people-wise? Yeah, so we're about 60 to 70 people, and we're a member-based organization, which means that we have members uh, who are living all over New England and the country who help support and inform the advocacy that we do. And so we're really place-based, so we focus a lot on the environmental treasures here in New England and protecting those for all of New Englanders. Okay, so again, the geographic focus just mainly is New England, though. It is, but I will say that a lot of the work that we do is intended to be replicable around the country. So we we in New England like to forge the way to make a new new solution to a problem and then help disseminate that across the country as a model. Oh, I see a little bit of competition between New England and California. You know, who's who's <laughs> going to do it first? I get it. A little bit of background on why I have you guys on. I get guests recommend it all the time, but I actually found you guys. I had read a short article in The Dirt, which is the newsletter that the American Society of Landscape Architects puts out, and it talked about this report, this climate adaptation and liability workshop report that you guys did, and being the guy that I am, I thought, wow, that's exciting. Could one of you, and we're going to dig into this report, and we're going to bring up some other issues there, but could one of you summarize what this report is all about, and maybe a little bit of a history of the report? I think it might help to give a little bit of context on how CLF really got to working on this issue. You know, we were in the sphere of climate adaptation, we were really noticing this gap in this need for more urgent action on the implementation side. And so we really were endeavoring to identify what the lever was going to be both for public, but also private decision makers to get this implementation on climate adaptation happening more quickly. And Elena and I, you know, we had talked to a lot of different folks, you know, in the insurance industry and some other places about whether or not, you know, for instance, insurance might be that lever. And we kept kind of hearing the same thing over and over again, which was, you know, while in the long term, some of those things might kick in and start incentivizing more forward thinking decision making, it wasn't going to, it doesn't have the urgency attached to it that we really needed. So for insurance, for example, you know, we were really hearing, well, we underwrite policies on an annual basis and we're going to continue to underwrite based on the the current risk until, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to, to underwrite anymore. And so we started looking at climate liability as that potential lever. And it's not a new concept. We've seen climate liability come up in cases 
mainly around uh, mitigation. When Elena and I started looking into that, those were some of the cases that, you know, we were looking at. And that's when I say mitigation, I mean reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And those cases are really focused on big oil and gas companies, huge GHG emitters. And what we really wanted to focus on was whether or not there were, was legal liability for those who failed to adapt to climate change. Elena, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that the gist of the report that you reference is to raise awareness that actually we are all trying to get adaptation to happen faster and faster. And there are people that are pointing fingers of who should be paying for it and when and and we're not doing it fast enough. And the concept of legal liability has been something that has been used for a long time to try and change social behaviors whether it was the tobacco litigation or asbestos litigation, we've seen that a lawsuit, a big high impact lawsuit can often be the thing that shifts behavior. And so that's why CLF was particularly interested in drilling into this idea of, okay, if we don't adapt fast enough, who's going to be on the hook for that? And so it was uh, the, the purpose of this report was really to start asking those questions and to do a deep dive on the legal liability of folks that are along the chain of design, construct, build, finance, and operate our built infrastructure. Who's going to be liable if the decision maker is not uh, choosing to make the infrastructure resilient to climate change, known climate change impacts, I'll say. Okay. And so you just mentioned some of the people that might be liable, but as I was thinking about the diversity of the, the legal system and you think of corporate law, environmental law, and I guess in regards to how you wrote this report, you could quickly kind of get an unmanageable report that's not that relevant to, I guess, to any group. It, just even talking about lawyers, let alone all the people out at society who want to think about this liability, did that factor in? I, and I guess this, you, the report itself was sort of a, the outcome of a workshop that you were doing that you had people participate in. But did you see what I'm saying? It's just that you have all these different types of law. Is it just sort of a primer for all of them? I think the better way to look at it is instead of like you have all of these different types of law, it's more that you have all of these different players. The law is the same. It applies to everyone who is making decisions the same way. I think the question is, let's say you're a design professional. How would a negligence claim affect you? What would a negligence claim look like if you were to behave unreasonably when you were making a design choice versus if I'm a government official how does a negligence claim, what does it look like for me? If I'm a, I'm a decision maker in my municipal government and I choose to make a choice that is cheaper, but I knew that maybe I should have chosen something that would have handled higher stormwater controls given what I know about increasing rainfall. So they're both going to be negligence law. That, that, that is just common law that applies to both players, but the design professional is going to have certain issues come up in that negligence claim that won't come up for a government official. For example, a government official will have certain immunities because they are in, they are a part of the government, which has sovereign immunity to certain negligence claims. So I think that's a better way to look at it. And this report was, I think, generally talking about negligence law. We were also talking about certain constitutional provisions like the takings doctrine and what kind of liability could come up under that. And then we were also talking about certain 
existing environmental laws that really we just had to cherry pick a couple examples to show that there are actually existing statutory frameworks that do compel adaptation. Right. And I'll just say our section in the report, which you might have read, looking at existing statutes and kind of permitting structures, that actually isn't just limited to environmental laws. There are a lot of existing statutes that we can point to that would require the type of adaptive action that we're talking about. So it is a little, even in that context, it is a little bit more broad ranging kind of beyond environmental law. So in this conversation, I don't want to get too in the weeds about specific court cases, but we obviously have to sort of acknowledge some of them. And in, in, in that article, I, I want to read this. And, and Elena, if you could sort of expand on what was said here. And in the article, it said, Elena cautioned that inherently uncertain nature of climate change is not a sufficient defense of a negligence lawsuit. Quote, even unprecedented events have been held in courts of law as being foreseeable due to modeling. That seems like a really big deal. Could you sort of elaborate what you were saying there? Yeah, sure. So I'm referencing case law that we've seen where a court found an engineer to be liable in a situation where a structure blew down, toppled over onto someone in in high wind speeds. And the engineer came to the court and said, hey, judge, you know, why? how could I have possibly known that this could have happened? These wind speeds never occurred in this place. And the judge looked back and observed that there was modeling available that showed that such high wind speeds were po- were possible. And given the engineer's profession and that their role is to ensure the safety of structures, uh, that it was negligent not to use a higher grade concrete for that structure in order to prevent failure in a high wind speed. So- right. It's sort of one case that you could carry forward and think, how would that apply in other situations where engineers in particular are making choices about which rated material to use in certain situations and the need to go beyond just, well, what, what beyond just backward looking and, and actually think forward? Right. And I would just point out that that's not a recent case. That, I mean, that case is from, I think, the late 1960s. But in the climate change context, you know, one of the things that we've really kind of tried to drive home is this idea that over the last 10 or 15 years or so, we have, you know, incredible new information, new tools have become available to model and assess climate risk. And these tools are not only increasingly sophisticated and accurate, but that information is being made readily available at both international and national levels. And what we're also seeing is that this kind of data is more available at the local level. Many communities are investing in what we call downscaled models, which is essentially a modeling process that takes information known at large scales to make predictions at local scales. And, you know, not only has that allowed governments to assess risks at the state and city level, but in many cases, that data is being made public. It's open source and it's actually being put actively to use by government agencies and others. So that's a big deal that, you know, the availability of that data and the sophistication of it increases this idea that these risks are, you know, reasonably foreseeable. Okay. In a previous life, I was involved with a a bit of scenario planning and you you would use this downscale model in that process. And as it was 
done in, you know, I was at the National Park Service and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. What they tried to really qualify scenario planning with, and you guys have probably been exposed to it a bit now, is that this isn't a projection of the future. It's just one of many potential scenarios that the future could be. And so if it's not a specific one-off projection, but it's multiple potential projections, is that the sort of information that would be used in these kind of cases that you're talking about? Would that be, would that suffice that, oh, we had five different scenarios and all five were showing pretty bad things. Some were on more extreme than the others. How would you how would a court case kind of look at using that information? Because, you know, this is in regards to like conservation planning and land management. Right. I'm going to let Elena talk a little bit about how a court would view that information. But I'll just say that we actually get that question a lot, especially from design professionals kind of asking, well, what's the scenario that we're supposed to be using? What's like the amount of sea level rise that we should be referencing? How do we know which scenario to be using? And it's not that black and white. As you said, there are different scenarios. For the most part, all of those climate projections dated, you know, beyond 2030 have the potential to change because they're inextricably linked to our ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You know, the, the climate projections that we have today for 2100 could very well change, either get better or get a lot worse in the next five or 10 years. And so what we've really, you know, said to design professionals and others who have asked us this question is, it's not so much about knowing the exact, you know, data or the exact number you should be using. It's about being able to access and take into consideration the newest publicly available, most accurate data. And a, a part of that is, is, you know, looking at the risk of whatever the infrastructure or other issue is that you're talking about. So if you're talking about um, a bridge that is going to be critical to critical infrastructure, you know, it's, it's critical to public health and safety, you, there would likely be a process by which you would consider, okay, what were, what did the decision maker take into consideration when they were deciding which what data to use. And if there was a more extreme end of that range in the science, you could see how someone might say it would, you know, you should have reasonably considered the worst case scenario because what was at risk, you know, warranted you to use that worst case scenario, even if it, you know, may not have been the reality or or it, it was one of a range of options. I think that's right. I think that it's hard to give a black and white response of what is the right scenario to use. I think it's going to I think the first the cases that we're seeing and that will probably shed light on that uh, on this issue of like who's liable. I could imagine a defendant in those cases is one who did not engage at all in any kind of climate analysis for a project and then it was hit by a hurricane, roof caved in, someone was injured, that that's probably what we're likely to see as a case that we'll look to, as opposed to the more gray area of which does, you know, which storm scenario did you use? Um, it's probably going to be more of a case of there wasn't anything used at all. Um, no climate analysis done whatsoever. But what, what we're seeing more is based on this information that we're putting out. And, and I think a lot of design professionals are concerned about which design should I be using? Um, if the standard, if, if I can't just rely on the building code, like what can I rely on? And I know that the American Society of Civil Engineer, Engineering just 
put out a manual of practice in the last couple of months, specifically on this topic of incorporating climate data into design planning processes. And it, and they are advocating for really um, this concept of adaptive design standards. And so designing to a design load that's based on future projections and can be adapted in some way based on changes in statistics of extremes. Both of you are promoting or not promoting, I guess, just bringing attention to this issue. I'm just curious at the foundation, there's quite a few staff attorneys and I imagine at any law firm there there's internal debate. Is there any that of that sort of people questioning that adaptation is this, you know, kind of new framework of thinking about challenging a court? I mean, at, at the foundation, is there any sort of voices skeptical of what you're doing? So no, (laughs) (laughs) and I would, you know, I want to take a step back and say, this isn't, I think Elena mentioned this earlier, but this isn't a new concept. You know, litigation has been used for forever to influence behavior. And this is a simply, you know, this is simply just a new area of its application. So we don't see this as being, you know, this isn't a novel concept. This is something that's been around for a very long time. And although, you know, we mentioned and and you probably saw from our report, a lot of the cases that we're referencing to talk about this in some of the ones that we've just discussed now are older cases that aren't necessarily in kind of the climate change context. You know, Conservation Law Foundation is is actively bringing some of these cases. We have a case right now that Elena can talk more about in Massachusetts, again, ex- against ExxonMobil for a facility that they operate, you know, on the waterfront that is not prepared for climate change. And we're making, you know, that case is about this exact issue of having liability for not adapting. Yeah, Elena, could you briefly talk about that case just to give people a sense of what's happening right now? Yeah, sure. So it's a case that is still pending. And it is, as Deanna mentioned, it's our organization and a local, a couple of local groups bringing a claim against ExxonMobil, who operates an oil and gas transport facility right on the water in Everett, Massachusetts, which is an environmental justice community just north of Boston. And essentially what our claims are alleging is that they have a federal Clean Water Act permit that they are violating right now for a number of reasons, both just sort of standard pollution discharges that are unlawful under their permit. But there are also requirements in their permit that make them have certain stormwater plans in place so that if there is extreme weather in some regard, that they are prepared to protect the community in which the facility sits from uh, release of hazardous waste, because basically this is a tank farm and all of these tanks are storing hazardous waste of petrochemicals of some kind. And an engineer has to certify that plan and say that that plan is consistent with good engineering practices. And CLF took a look at that plan and that plan really doesn't mention anything about the known storm surge rise that we will see. This is a coastal facility doesn't say anything about sea level rise, doesn't say anything about increased precipitation or hurricanes. And we're saying that is not in accordance with good engineering practice. A good engineer would incorporate that kind of known climate data into a plan for this facility and equip it so that it was hardened against 
what we know is coming in the future and that Exxon knows how to harden other facilities that it cares about, but that this one they sort of turned a blind eye to and left the, the community like sitting ducks in the next storm that the facility will just be at risk to to leaking. Oh, the irony in that the Exxon is having to factor in sea level rise and facility management. And it occurs to me there's obviously other lawsuits against Exxon in regards to the on the carbon emissions side of things. And I wonder if there's any sort of acknowledgement in their planning for sea level rise that that could be used in a court case associated with the carbon emissions that they're responding. I know I'm just sort of leading this there, but it's just, yeah, it seems like a, a a circle there of what's happening with Exxon and their involvement with climate change. Yeah, certainly that and many other oil and gas companies have had some of the largest engineering and scientists, scientists staff than any other organization. I think if you go back into the, like decades ago, you know, Exxon employed more scientists than the federal government and they, they were working on these issues and acknowledging internally, we know now the presence of climate change and the risks involved. And so that does play into this case. But at its core, I don't have time to go into the the other legal arguments that we're making in, in this case, but that's sort of the matter in broad strokes. And we have another similar against uh, Shell that is down in um, Providence, Rhode Island. But we're seeing this issue of down in, in Texas, around Harvey, we saw a lot of facilities that were just really ill-equipped to handle the onslaught of rain or the lack of loss of power, things that we know are going to come with uh, extreme weather events and making sure that these facilities are preparing. And, you know, they're often located in places that are, as I said, environmental justice communities. And it's really uh, unacceptable for these facilities to not put in the same amount of effort to harden and prepare those facilities as they do to their other assets. And it's interesting, too, to think about, Elena mentioned that Exxon has had this scientific information and scientists on staff who have, you know, made them aware of the impacts of that they're having on the climate for decades. And it's it's interesting to think about the parallels between that and, you know, something like the tobacco industry, where it was a very similar situation of them having all of this science at their fingertips of the health implications of tobacco and really burying it um, and how that blew up in a litigation context as well. Yeah, again, it's just I find it fascinating that they could acknowledge a future climate change projection regarding sea level rise in their facility. And then could that be used in the court case against them when it comes to the impacts of the carbon that they've emitted? So, you know, there they go. They're they're on record of sort of acknowledging this climate change. Again, there are all sorts of things juggling with a legal decision, but very interesting case. So I'm going to pivot a little bit here. And Elena, you were sort of mocking me that Margaret Pelosa, who was a previous guest and lawyer, was sort of, you know, totally just running circles around me. And when I was trying to ask her questions, just curious, did anything else stand out in that episode for you that's kind of relevant to the work that you guys are doing? Yeah. I mean, that was such an in- in- interesting episode for me to listen to. I'm not only an adaptation geek, but then when you add a lawyer into the mix, it was like two of my favorite things. I think that something she mentioned that strikes a chord, particularly with this work, was the the notion around um, Superfund sites and and hazardous waste clean cleanup, and how we have this great set of laws on the books for handling ha- liability around hazardous waste facilities and cleaning them up and making sure that we 
you know, do annual reviews. Uh, and she was specifically talking about how there's a five year review process. And something that I think CLF is looking into is, well, now that we have changed climatic circumstances, especially with regard to flooding or with, and that's both inland and coastal, how is that going to impact the cleanup plan that's in place for a landfill, let's say, that's located near the coast? And are the five-year review processes asking the right questions? What sort of time frame are they considering for looking ahead and asking whether this site is actually going to be safe and in the future, given what we know about climate impacts? And so I recall that she was talking about how, you know, it's okay because we have written into the statute or the regs this five-year review process. And I think the the what I'm curious about is sort of what does that review process require of the decision maker and what what time horizon are they looking at? Are they just looking at the next five years? Because maybe it'd be okay. But is that myopic of us? Should we actually be taking a longer view when we're considering cleanup at a hazardous waste facility. So that that was interesting to me. Deanna, I want to give you a ch- You didn't listen to the episode, did you? I did. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. Did you have any thought? Did it, was it relevant to anything we're doing here? Yeah. I mean, the, the super fun stuff definitely stood out for all the reasons that Elena talked about. I, I personally found really interesting the public trust doctrine conversation because in Massachusetts, we're actually in a very specific kind of uh, context where we've codified the public trust doctrine um, into state law. And so I know Margaret had mentioned this idea of, well, should we prospectively be requiring people to get things like seawalls permitted if we know that one day that land is going to trade hands from being privately owned to publicly owned? And it's interesting to think about it in that context, because in Massachusetts, we've, we've kind of done that. We have, you know, the state has jurisdiction over tidelands already, and it requires permitting for all uses on tidelands. But what we're really looking at now is how those, how that statute and how those regulations might not be well conditioned for climate change and how, you know, the jurisdiction might actually be changing, um, how we might be bringing new properties into the fold. And, you know, there, there are very specific requirements under those permits that um, do things like protect public access to the water. And we're looking at whether or not those, you know, rules are go far enough or whether or not we could be see, we could see a situation in the next couple of decades where all public access to Boston's waterfront, for instance, is threatened or lost because we didn't think ahead of how, what the water might do and where it might go. Okay, so you two have teamed up on this, and I don't know how the sort of the history of that, um, maybe you can explain, and you're promoting this, and obviously there's interest. I was very interested in what you're doing, and I think you're attending conferences and, and, and talking about this issue. Uh, curious, Deanna, you're a planner, and then Elena, uh, you're a lawyer. Is there sort of any tensions that kind of come up when you're talking about these issues? Between us, you mean? <laughs> yeah, between you, yeah. You already, you already like misdirected your other lawyer friends at the foundation, but you two, do you guys be like, no, we shouldn't highlight this, or maybe we should be promoting this and not get down in the weeds of the legal side? I mean, is there any tension? Any? I will say that I really enjoy working with a non-lawyer on this topic because I think the training that lawyers receive is to really just sort of stick with the rigid parameters of the black letter law. And 
I took one planning class in law school, but we're really not trained on like the, the extensive land use zoning and really, I would say, community engagement processes that planners have the background of. So I think it, it's one of the reasons why. And now ever since I've started working with Deanna, I really insist on her doing everything in partnership with her. So we're forcing you to talk to us both because I really just feel like our backgrounds lend a different lens to things and a different perspective. And, and people listen to us in different ways, too. I think, you know, when you find out that someone's a lawyer, there's a certain like radar that goes up, up that they're just kind of taking everything you say with a certain something that maybe they don't with Deanna or vice versa. Right. And it's been really interesting for me because, you know, I've seen how land use and planning decisions get made on the ground and the ways in which those decisions are so deeply rooted in these kind of static frameworks. I mean, there's all of these layers of federal, state and local regulations that, you know, it's, it's, I can see why it's so difficult for localities and for states to think through how you incorporate climate change into all of the decisions that you make. And in a lot of ways, it makes it easier when I'm talking to Elena to think through, you know, what the best ways to do that are and how you portray that to people who are in these positions who are really grappling with how they address these issues when, you know, our decision making frameworks are so out of date. So you guys have like a sort of a short to midterm kind of a marketing plan for the two of you to keep going on and talking about the, the, this report? Well, we're excited that we are going to be attending the National Adaptation Forum okay. in Madison, Wisconsin, and sort of we've, through this work, uh, engaged with a couple of other fantastic individuals who are working on the sort of the nexus of law and policy and adaptation at uh, the Georgetown Climate Center. So we'll be joining them at the adaptation workshop uh, forum in Madison. Maybe I'll see you there. I'm looking, trying to get sponsored, but I, I try to go to that one. So maybe we could meet in person. That would be great. All right. I want to drill down because I think of how this is relevant to different sectors. And you guys have talked a bit about landscape architecture. And I want to see talk about how it's relevant to that field. And I'm going to ask you some questions related to that. And I'm going to start off with a quote here. This is you, Deanna. <laughs> this could be an <laughs> opportunity for the design community to really pioneer this space and use liability to, to be proactive in the face of climate impacts. Added Elena. The threat of liability can turn what is dreamed about into the standard. Okay, so why has landscape architecture been such a focus of your outreach? And what, what did you mean, the both of you, with, with, with that quote? Because I think that's very interesting. So, you know, architects and engineers kind of generally have been an audience that we've been targeting. Um, so we did go and present at ASLA, but we've also presented to engineering professional societies and architects writ large. And part of the reason that we've targeted that audience collectively is because we found that they're really eager to hear more about this and that they're actually very concerned about this issue. And so, you know, in talking with them, one of the main things that we heard was we are really concerned about this. You know, we do actually actively try and get our clients to do things to incorporate climate change. Um, you know, we as a profession know some of the way, some of the innovative ways that we can deal with these risks, 
But at the end of the day, we are not the ultimate decision maker. Our client is the decision maker. And if we can't successfully persuade them, they're, you know, they're the ones that are going to decide. And so the idea for them that they're ultimately the ones stuck with the professional liability, even though they might not be making the final decision was a, was a huge kind of red flag. And so what, you know, the type of things that they said to us was, well, we can't rely on the building code. We can't rely on zoning codes. You know, what do we do? And so that specific quote that you were talking about, uh, we're really thinking about that in the context of turning that audience into advocates for better updated regulations and codes. You know, the building code has been a huge focus of ours because you know, nationwide, most of the states in the U.S. adopt the International Code Council's model codes. Those codes don't account for climate change. And even at the state level, you have the ability to amend those codes to make them more locally specific. And states don't typically take that option because, I mean, there's a number of factors of why they don't like to do that. But in Massachusetts, you know, the building code is a huge problem because municipalities can't regulate above it. And the code currently doesn't take into consideration these risks. So, for instance, if you were the city and you had a developer coming in that wanted to build a building in a specific way or in a specific area, you're extremely limited in what you can tell them they can and can't do as far as it relates to the actual structure or the materials being used or the assumptions going into how you determine if that building is going to have structural integrity. That's all decided through the state code. Okay. In relation to the building code, I actually asked, I have an advisory committee and I asked them if they had any questions they wanted me to share with you guys. And I don't know if you've run across Jesse Keenan. He's based out of Boston. He's at Harvard University and he, he gave me a question. So bear with me here. And it's related. I do know Jesse. Okay. <laughs> you know what you got coming. Okay. So what is the liability? And you sort of alluded to this, but what is the liability for building code or something that's even better than what the code requires? And if you do this, let me just read this exactly. And if you do so, you are not really taking on much liability other than building to code. Will professional liability insurers cover a standard of care that has been modified to include something to a standard higher than code? This is a major challenge. You can take that one, Elena. <laughs> yeah, the question of will my professional liability insurance cover me has come up. And I think that the there's two answers to that question. There's like, if you look, if it's an incident that happens today, you can look at your professional liability coverage and ask, well, what does it cover at the time of the incident? But because professional liability insurance in this sector is claims-based, it means that you could sign up for coverage and think that you're covered for something. And then three years down the line, when you're on the hook for a liability, the insurance company could have changed what they cover. And so you don't necessarily know exactly what you will be covered for in the future today. So what you're building today could have a structural default that three years down the road, your insurance company has decided, whoa, we're starting to see so many different climate change related claims. We can't cover these anymore. And we can, they could change your coverage. It is a little bit cold comfort to look to professional liability insurance to necessarily cover you for negligence. So I will say that's one thing. And, and we are starting to see a shift in the insurance sector. And I think that either premiums will start to really rise for these professions, and that's how the insurance companies will deal with more climate-related claims, or they will just, similar to asbestos, they can just say, nope, we're not covering these claims anymore. So there are 
statutes of repose and statutes of limitations that play into into this as well. But I think that's addressing one part of Jesse's question. I think the other part was, what kind of protection do I have maybe for going above and beyond the code? Um, and that is something that I think has arose during the early days of green, like so-called green building is sort of this question of like, well, if I have a green roof, is that going to, am I going to be liable for something that is like going above and beyond? And at this point, I don't think there's a, a certain rule for liability for going necessarily above and beyond, but it's really just about what your insurance is covering. And it it's more so about it being a claims-based insurance business. What's your sense of uh, the, the penetration of, uh, I guess, th- factoring climate change within the landscape Arctic field? You're, you, you're engaging with them to a certain extent, but the, these audiences that you're speaking to, is it half the people are really starting to think about it, or is it 5%? Do you, do you have a sense? That's an interesting question. I will let Elena weigh in, but I will just say that we've we've started to kind of make a habit of surveying our audiences before and after we give our presentation to them. And at ASLA in particular, we actually just got some of the, the documented answers back from when we surveyed that audience. And one of the first questions that we asked them before we gave our presentation was, how worried are you about your own liability when it comes to the impacts of climate change on your projects? And the scale was one, uh, meaning you're not worried at all, to 10, you know, you're sleepless worrying about it. And the average answer was about a six. And that's pretty consistent with what we've been finding with other audiences is that they're pretty split in terms of who this is like a really big red flag for and who is kind of like, well, maybe this is a, a problem, but I'm not too worried about it yet. But I will say that also we in that same survey at the very end, we asked people, how likely are you to, sh- to recommend this presentation to a colleague? And I'm sure part of that is just like, oh, this was an interesting presentation. But I think one was not at all. Ten was I'm going to tell everyone I know about it. And and everyone responded with a 10. I think that that shows that people come in sort of skeptical of like, well, I don't know if I think about climate change that much. And then at the end of our presentation, people are, oh, I need to start thinking about this. This is right. this impacts me. Another another interesting question is, and like we talked about, you know, it's not just the design professional who met, who has a say in this process. It's ultimately the client that they're working for. And so another question that we asked was, you know, how often do your clients ask you to incorporate climate data into, you know, the basis of design? And again, one, never, 10, always. Uh, the average there was about a four. And that's pretty consistent as well. So we are kind of hearing from folks that, even though they're thinking about it, um, they're rarely asked by the client to consider it. This might be a useful anecdote. This is, I just interviewed Signe Nielsen. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a landscape architect out of New York City. She's done a lot of made big projects along you know, Manhattan, the coast there. And she was telling me that because I was asking about related issues and she was about to do a project in Miami. And, and I was asking, you know, would you take on a project if you knew it was going to be under threat from sea level rise? And she let's see if I got this right, that she, she didn't take on a specific project down in Miami because there was that danger and the developer was not factoring in. So she didn't take the job and it wasn't so much of a liability issue. And that's what you guys are going at, but it was more of, there's a, a general code of ethics when you're landscape architect. Um, and, you know, there's a certification and you could drive a truck through a lot of these certifications, but you know, that in itself is very interesting is that all these different fields have 
codes of ethics and getting language associated with climate change kind of baked into those would really be helpful. And, you know, she made a decision. She didn't take some work because she didn't want to do something that might be under threat of sea level rise. And she would felt that it wouldn't be responsible of her to do that. That's really encouraging to hear. Actually, the American Institute of Architects just in the last couple of I think months, just in 2018, revised their code of ethics to incorporate climate change. So now it actually reads that members should incorporate adaptation strategies with their clients to anticipate extreme weather events and minimize adverse effects on the environment, the economy, and public health. So kudos to that landscape architect for abiding by that ethical code. Yeah, she, she, she's doing some amazing work. These are more general questions uh, related that hopefully I have a little fun with here. And again, this was another question I, I got from a colleague here. I'm here in Tucson. He, um, it's from Lad Keith, and he's at the University of Arizona. And he's a planner. He does a lot of planning here in Tucson. And as far as he can tell, that there's really no legal precedent for dealing with the heat threat of climate change. Is there a lot of law associated with that? Or as was you were saying earlier, it's just there's there's other precedent that it would be relevant here. Does that question make sense? Just dealing with that sort of the elevated heat levels? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I think your, your instinct. Yeah, yes, you're right. I, I am not familiar with a case that is dealing specifically with heat, but that doesn't mean that it's not out there, nor does it mean that you couldn't draw parallels between other sort of ambient environmental impacts of climate change. So, for example, I know of claims that have arisen um, related to mold in public housing because of just increased temperature and humidity. And so that was a American with Disabilities Act, an ADA claim related to, to mold in public housing. So you, I certainly could imagine theories of litigation arising around making sure that public housing, for instance, provides adequate air conditioning for tenants or something like that. Maybe both of you can answer this is that I, I worked in the state of Georgia for a few years and what was happening, this was like 2000 to 2003. And I'm, I'm you, you guys are probably f familiar with the tri-state water war down there, even just superficially, you guys f at all familiar with that l ongoing lawsuit, basically Georgia and Florida are, are suing. No, wait, it's Alabama and Florida are suing Georgia because they're not getting enough water because Georgia controls the watershed. And this, Lawsuit has been going on for decades, and I'm not even sure if there's been any sort of resolution with it. And my point with all this is that, okay, when is a final decision going to be made? Is Florida ever going to get enough water? And if if there are the parallels with big cases around adaptation and climate change, how can we really do anything when the law, I guess, the, the court system takes so long to make these decisions? Oh, yes. I mean, one of the cases that we have been watching is this case uh, that arose out of Hurricane Katrina back in 2003 that has, over the course of more than a decade, gone up and down in the court system and been reversed and is now up on cert with the U.S. Supreme Court having to do with whether a government can be held liable for failing to act in the face of known flooding risks. And that is the nature of litigation is that it is it is lengthy. Um, and yet it is part of our society that does bring finality 
once it is determined. And it's kind of amazing how, especially in our country, we listen to what courts say in the end, even if many people disagree. Um, the reverence that we give our court system is pretty phenomenal. I, I mean, I would also say I know we're focused on the, in this episode around legal liability, but that's not to say that there aren't other liabilities out there that people are thinking about that could come into play and maybe force some more urgent action. And in particular, I'm thinking about financial liability. I think bond ratings are going to end up being a huge factor in the next few years. Uh, a little over a year ago, Moody's credit rating agency announced that it's embedding climate risks as a factor when it determines a state or local government's credit rating. Uh, specifically that they're, you know, the credit risks to issuers from climate change, including economic disruption, property loss, physical damage, health and public safety, even population displacement, all of which obviously put stress on an issuer's budget and economic stability. And though we haven't seen Moody's actually permanently downgrade um, a state or local government yet on the, on the sole or part basis of climate change, you can imagine that when or if that were to happen, cities might be kind of floored into action because that significant has significant and immediate implications for just regular city services and what they're able to do in the in the near term. I would also say something at play here is that maybe we're not seeing swift enough action on resilience and adaptation because we've had such a hard time quantifying the risk of doing nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I think is changing is that with these sophisticated models and with litigation too, the costs of litigation, I think the private sector is waking up and the public sector to the, the real costs of doing nothing. And I, I think in that regard, we're starting to see these these ideas of uh, resilience bonds, of uh, para, parabolic uh, catastrophe bonds coming out of the work to try and assign a value to adapting and then monetize that and be able to use that money to do the adaptation work that you want to do in the beginning. You know, we, we, that reminds me, we, I did a whole panel on ecosystem, adaptation ecosystem services, and you were trying to quantify the adaptation value, uh, its future value, but then generate the funding for it to, you know, I got to dust that thing off. But yeah, it just sort of gets to what you're talking about is that, you know, they're finding funding sources today based on the sort of the future cost and such. Environmental economists, I think they're doing a lot of neat things, but just getting that into practice is very difficult. Okay, some other questions here, and this is very timely. And just even very recently, the CEO of the PG&E energy company in California resigned, and that company is just going through a roller coaster right now. They Apparently, I think one of their power lines fell down, and they were responsible for one of the major fires that occurred last year where multiple people died. And I don't even know if they're in the throes of bankruptcy, but it, it seemed very relevant to their liability associated with not factoring climate change. Are you guys sort of just monitoring that? It just seems like a very important situation that's kind of coming up. Yeah, right. I think what's complicated about that is it's true. You rarely see a case that is that concrete in terms of it was PG&E's line that actually started the fire. But what sort of what scenario 
played into the fact that the forest around that line or the grasslands around that line were just so primed and ready to erupt in flames with the tiniest spark. And what played into the decision to build homes all around that area that then were eaten up by the flames. So I, I definitely think it's fascinating in a really like tragic way to watch this company that just a couple of years ago was flying high. Now it is filing for bankruptcy all over these liability claims. But I think an equally important question is who else is to blame and how is society going to spread that burden out? Is it is is PG&E just the scapegoat right now for what were a lot a host of other land use decisions about what we're building and where, how we're managing the forest and and climate change writ large and the dryness that was contributing to why everything just was like ready to go into flame so quickly. I would quibble with that a little bit and just say, yes, there are a million other contextual considerations, especially in the in the specific scenario of, you know, drought and wildfire. But I don't I mean, I think companies like PG&E and utility companies writ large should absolutely be held responsible for considering climate when they're designing their infrastructure, when they're maintaining their infrastructure. And, you know, in a situation where you have a downed line, I mean, part of that is what caused the down line. But I think I think of this more in kind of the flood context where we've also seen it play out after some of these extreme storms where you've had substations explode um, and other infrastructure fail. And that to me is a huge problem. I mean, I see we see in Massachusetts, one of the things that we hear a lot from local governments is that they can do all of the adaptation planning that they want, but they ultimately can't make decisions about, you know, where utilities get put and how they're maintained and, and what they're planning for. And that's all connected to public infrastructure, even though it may not be publicly owned. And I know here in Massachusetts, you know, utility companies, investor owned utility companies are not required to actively consider, you know, forward looking risks. So that means, and this was the case, this was the case in New York back when Hurricane Sandy hit. That means that if you have a substation explode because of extreme weather, you can go into your local utility oversight department, whatever it might be called, and, and try to recover ratepayer dollars to reconstruct that infrastructure in the exact same way it was when it was destroyed. And there's nothing in place to say you need to be more prudent about how you're spending those ratepayer dollars and you need to take into consideration the fact that your, your infrastructure is increasingly vulnerable to climate risks and that that has health and safety implications that no one can control but you. So I think that there's a lot of responsibility to be placed on these utility companies, regardless of kind of the larger context of climate and, you know, land use decisions and all of that, because ultimately they're responsible for maintaining and operating that infrastructure in a way that's going to keep people safe. All right. First off, great. I found some tension between the two of you. Finally. <laughs> You're going to take that from her, Elena? Um, no. All right. I, I do want to wrap this up with a few more questions here. This is a, another broader question. I think we alluded to it earlier is that I, I think of some of these big climate change cases related to carbon emissions. And you hear about this court case where these children are suing. I, I'm not even that familiar with the case, but they're, they're suing. And I think it made its way through one stage. Is, is there a chance that 
let's say these adaptation liability court cases versus the carbon emission court cases, could they undermine each other? Could the carbon emission cases sort of say, well, we're, we need to wait for this science or look at this decision that was made over on this other side. Is there that possibility that they could be just the precedent set on either side undermine each other? No, I don't think so. I think that this is an all hands on deck situation where we need all the legal minds at the table pushing strategies together. And I don't see these two as undermining one another. I, I think the kind the cases that CLF are bringing right now, the Exxon case that we mentioned before and the Shell case, many people will point to those cases as being on much, much more solid ground than, for example, the Juliana case, which is the case you're referring to, which is pushing quite a novel theory in public trust litigation. And I think that right now we just we don't know who, which ones will succeed, and so it's it's worthwhile bringing claims from all of these different angles. Okay, another pivot here, and this is what you guys love doing is speculating. All right, so when you think about the legal system and how lawsuits are driving a lot of, I guess, policy changes and stuff, look at what's in the pipeline, like let's say with sea level rise and all these issues associated with climate change. I, I was trying to come up with a, a good question, and you think of a derogatory term for a lawyer like an ambulance chaser. Do you foresee that kind of change in the system and, you know, billboards with lawyers saying, hey, sea level rise is going to swamp your house. Call me. And I mean, and I bet you'd probably find sort of the equivalent after like Harvey and some of these recent storms. But do you have any sort of projections on how the, the I guess the law sector is going to evolve with it? I'll let Deanna respond after me, but I, I think. There's probably some truth to what you're saying. Just anecdotally, I, I have spoken with a couple of lawyers who are working on cases down in Texas after Harvey, and I think one of them referred to this practice of bringing lawsuits against engineering firms for default in design of stormwater infrastructure as like a growing area of practice for them. They were formally they're trained in the products liability litigation and this is really similar to that of just the product is the infrastructure and looking at liability issues related to what did you what should you have planned for when constructing it and i think there's some truth to what you're saying that there probably will be a rise in attorneys working on cases related to harms uh, from climate change Elena, do you have any thoughts? I would say just on the flip side of that, in an optimistic way, uh, there might also be more opportunity. We've seen a lot of interest on the part of municipalities and states in consulting with uh, attorneys about what they can do proactively uh, around climate risks. And so in a lot of places like Boston that are looking to do you know, more forward looking zoning, for instance, what are the uh, you know, what should they be thinking about? How can they protect themselves from this type of liability. And especially in the in the zoning context, I think one of the big issues is that most of our floodplain management practices are tied to FEMA. Um, and the FEMA floodplains are, I mean, the data itself is, is usually outdated, but it also doesn't consider forward-looking climate risks. So the areas that they're really regulating are completely underestimating the risk. And so there are people living outside of those FEMA designated floodplains who are at risk that a lot of cities would like to kind of bring into the fold and start taking into consideration. And so we're starting to see them 
update some of these regulatory frameworks. And that's definitely a, a great proactive role for attorneys to be playing. All right. Two great answers. And it took the America Dabs podcast to really bring out these tensions between you two. So. <laughs> I didn't say they're compliments. Two, two sides of one coin. No, I'm trying to create some drama here. Stop it. It makes for great podcast listening. You guys. <laughs> All right. Three questions left I've got here. And you've sort of answered that almost already, but uh, in the line you just did, but it just, let's say my listeners, they represent adaptation professionals almost in every sector. And you weren't quite able to answer this for landscape architects, but what would you recommend that they hear this and they think, oh my gosh, liability is going to become this big issue. But as you can imagine, most small to medium sized organizations, they don't have a staff attorney. They don't think about the court approach to what they do, be it conservation, be it planning, what, what would you to really recommend that they do next? Is it just sort of educate yourself? I think getting involved in not only educating yourself, but getting involved in the professional organization that regulates your profession seems to me to be a really ripe area to engage and to try and seek guidance. Like similar to what I was talking about with the American Society of Civil Engineers putting together a manual of practice to help give some guidance to engineers on, hey, we acknowledge that there is this gap between what the building code requires and what a court of law might require. And here's what we as a, as a, as a profession are recommending you do to account for that. I think that it's important, and that was a process that was driven by engineers that were asking that question, that were prodding that process. So getting engaged in your equivalent or organization, I think, would be a good next step as well. And I would just say, you know, even beyond that, becoming an advocate, we've said this to a lot of design professionals who have come and heard us speak you know, you, you have influence even outside of kind of your professional sphere. You have the ability to, to advocate at the state and city levels for stricter codes and for climate change to be taken into consideration so that the standards um, that you're looking to are up to date and you can rely on them um, with some more certainty. I read somewhere a great quote that basically for much of the planning and designing we're doing, it's like driving down the highway at 90 miles an hour and looking in our rear view mirror. Right. Yeah, that's appropriate. Yeah. This is, you guys probably know this is coming. I asked this of all my guests. And since there's two of you, I'm going to ask each of you to do it. If um, Diana, let's start with you. If you could recommend one guest to come on the podcast, who would it be? Wow. I have a lot of, I feel like I have a lot of power right now. Um, <laughs> Doesn't mean they're coming on, but. <laughs> <laughs> I would recommend a colleague of mine and Elena's that we worked pretty closely with in Massachusetts. Her name is Barbara Landau. Um, she's an attorney as well. I don't know how many attorneys you want to have on the podcast, but she specializes in environmental land use and construction law. Something that's really interesting about her is she actually also has a degree in planning. So she is a plan. She's like the embodiment of both me and Elena. She's a planner <laughs> and an attorney. Um, and she's been doing a lot of that proactive work that I talked about, um, where attorneys are, are actually being tapped by cities and others to think proactively about climate. And she's, you know, working with the city of Boston on a couple of different projects, looking at how they implement adaptation and how they incorporate it into regulations and zoning. And I think she would be a great guest. Great. Elena. I would recommend that you invite Samantha Medlock on. She is the former senior advisor to the Obama White House on resilience. And she now works at 
Willis Towers Watson, and she is the person who I have learned everything I know about resilience bonds and para- this really interesting idea of parametric insurance and parametric bonds in general, which are super interesting, growing type of funding or insuring uh, adaptation projects that I think folks would be interested to hear about. You know, I actually met Samantha. There's a when I lived in DC, there was this flooding happy hour and we, she used to go to that and I met her there. So yeah. So I, I would think it was just as she was transitioning out into the private sector. Cool. Two excellent recommendations. All right. The final bonus question I want to ask both of you and Elena, I think you know this is coming because I asked this of Margaret and you're allowed to change yours. Um, Diana is like, what is your favorite lawyer movie? And since you're a planner, Diana, you can tell me your favorite planner movie. I just don't think there's many of those. And so <laughs> I'm going to give you a second to think about it because, uh, Elena, you probably could probably answer this more quickly. So <laughs> favorite lawyer movie? Probably My Cousin Vinny. Uh, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. brother, we're doomed. <laughs> Actually, my evidence teacher in law school showed that film because Marissa Tomei is is sworn in as, a, in as an expert witness, and it's um it's a great scene for demonstrating how you how you bring in an expert witness who uh, may not have the credentials that you think warrant an expertise in a certain area, but as everyone knows in the movie, she knows more about cars than anyone in that room. And she won an Oscar for that role, you know? That's, well, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, great choice, my cousin Vinny. And uh, Deanna, what do, you, what do you have? Okay, I'm going to give you two answers because you're right. There are not a lot of movies about planners. But <laughs> right. my favorite TV show about planners is Parks and Rec. Oh, okay. um, and my favorite lawyer movie is Erin Brockovich because, as you'll recall, she was the star of that movie, but she was not an attorney. And I'd like to think of myself as the Erin Brockovich at CLF. Oh, those are two great choices. I love both those movies. Yeah, Erin Brockovich, that was a great movie. Okay, guys, what a fabulous conversation. Obviously, we could talk for a long time and just go down some rabbit holes associated with this, but I, I hope my listeners have a sense of what's happening, what's out there, and appreciate the work that you two are doing to bring attention to this issue. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Deanna and Elena for coming on. Three-way conversations can be so much fun, and they were great. I'm dazzled by the work they are doing and making what really is a dry subject very accessible and relevant to the rest of us working in adaptation. Check out the Conservation Law Foundation's website and see what else they're up to. Although their focus is generally regional, much of their work is going to be relevant to the rest of the country. For better or for worse, I think much of the progress we're going to see on the adaptation front will be under the duress of legal liability. These guys are helping us understand how this is starting to unfold. I highly recommend, even if you aren't lawyers, keeping your eye on this type of work. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. That group is private, but people share stories and we have some nice conversations back and forth. So just go on Facebook and look for America Adapts. And like I said before, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. And if you have an idea for guests, let me know. And so if you don't want me to read your letter, just let me know. And I still love receiving letters from you. Okay. I can be reached at americadapts at gmail.com. Don't forget the websites at americadapts.org and the donate page is in the show notes. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.